Welcome to the Cutting Edge Issues podcast from the Department of International Development at the LSE. We're thrilled to be back for Season 3 of Cutting Edge Issues in Development, Thinking and Practice, a visiting lecture series coordinated by me, Duncan Green, Professor in Practice in the Department, with Assistant Professor in International Development, Dr Laura Mann. Each week, renowned guest lecturers, including Harjun Chang, Rafif Siada, Branka Milanovic and Jayati Ghosh, share their expertise and spark discussion on a range of contemporary global issues in development, from the links between economics and science fiction, to how inequality is driving the climate crisis, to the impact of social media and disinformation on development. In 2020, we moved the series online, enabling us to host fantastic speakers from around the world and to stream the lectures online. This year, we moved the series back to in-person for our students and staff, but we'll continue to share the lectures with a global audience through YouTube, podcasts and blogs. I hope you enjoy the talk. Right, okay, so the title of today's lecture is The Popular Politics of 21st Century Food and Fuel Riots. And the main speaker uh, is Naomi Hussain, uh, who is a research professor at the Accountability Research Centre at the School of International Service at the American University. But most importantly, She's coming to SOAS next year, um, and it's very exciting to have Naomi back in the UK, and um, I've been a huge admirer of her work for very many years. She's a political sociologist and research professor. Uh, she researches the politics of inclusive development and how people get the public services they need, and has written about elite perceptions of poverty, the riots she's going to talk about, disaster politics, workers' rights, women's empowerment, and the role of civil society in development, among other things. She is a wide, broad and deep thinker, and I think we're really lucky to have her today. Uh, the discussant is Raj Patel. Raj is an award-winning author, filmmaker and academic. You can be all those things. He is a research professor in the Lyndon B. Johnson School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas, Austin. In addition to scholarly publications in economic philosophy, politics and public health, he regularly writes for The Guardian, and has contributed to a range of other publications like the FT, The Observer and Scientific American. And some plugs for his books. Stuffed and Starved, The Hidden Battle for the World Food System. His second book, The Value of Nothing, was a New York Times and international bestseller. He's the co-author with Jason Moore of A History of the World in Seven Cheap Things. And his latest book, co-authored with Rupa Maya, is entitled Inflamed, Deep Medicine and the Anatomy of Injustice. So I think we've got a fantastic lineup. Uh, Naomi, do you want to take it away? And you've got about 40 minutes to, uh, to, to speak, if that's okay. Thanks. Something just happened so that I can't share my screen. What happened? Ah, oh, here we are. So thank you so much, Duncan, and, um, and Raj as well. It's, it's such a, a great pleasure to, um, to get a chance to talk to you both about these issues that I know I've been talking about for a very long time, but which never seem to really go away, uh, or they go away and then they come back the next time um, the world has a bump in energy and food prices. And so I find myself circling back again and again to these issues. Um, what I would like to do today, sorry, slightly struggling with this, you'd think after two years of Zoom, we'd be proficient. I was going to bundle my thoughts into three areas, really. The first is to 
talk and think a bit about you know how we know about food and fuel rights you know what is the what is the basis of our knowing how do we how do we read them from our different positions and thinking very much about this from a development studies perspective um i think of development studies as necessarily interdisciplinary and and applied to problems rather than you know driven by debates in political science or economics or whatever so i think of these as uh you know, a development studies perspective on uh, on these on these quite prominent events. Um, I then want to move to a kind of slightly more empirical uh, discussion about the protests, the cost of living protests, food and fuel, food and energy, I should say, that have taken place so far in 2022. Um, there have been a lot of them. I'm working with Jeff Halleck here at American University um, to look at those and to do, to give us a little bit of a you know, a bit of an overview of, of uh, where and how and who and so on is protesting this year. Then I want to reflect, and here I feel I'm a little, on a little less strong ground, a little bit on what these protests are telling us. I, I, I use the overused phrase of the canary in the coal mine of global economy, global economic crises. I think they tell us a lot if we know how to read them. Um, or they can tell us a lot, and, and you know the, their messages are only now really emerging. I think, um, and I should say, you know, I've worked with a lot of people on these issues. I talk a lot, um, but uh, I've worked with a lot of different people on the on this, and I just wanted to make sure that you know you don't think it's just all me. Um, people from all around the world, great partners and colleagues, and uh, really deserve to be mentioned. And some people, some institutions have funded this work over the over the years and no doubt will fund us more in the future. So let's uh, move swiftly on to, first of all, this discussion about how do we know about food and fuel rights? What is it? What, how is our knowledge um, of these events framed? And I think the really important first thing to note is that all of our knowledge really about food and fuel rights ultimately really comes from the media. Uh, when academics say they're studying food or fuel rights, they're actually studying news reports of food and fuel rights. And, and with very few exceptions, I think uh, most analysis uh, is based on, on media coverage. Um, we now use uh, the, the really excellent data source, the Armed Conflict Location Events Database, wonderful source, which unfortunately was not available to us in 2007, 2008, when there was the last big wave of, of global food protests. Um, but even that data set fundamentally relies on new sources, even though it has more kind of robust um, verification methods as well. And it's it's really important that, you know, we rely so heavily on the media for their coverage, because, of course, not all food and fuel rights are reported. Not all of them are actually just about food and fuel. Um, and in, in, indeed, quite a lot of them are not actually riots because they tend not to be very violent until the, the the tanks or the police come in, um, the riot police in particular, and, and they tend to uh, then often descend into violence. But on the whole, they, they tend not to be riots up until that point. They're just protests. And, you know, we saw in 2022, this year, um, a great many of really quite small and very peaceful and almost unnoticeable events around these issues took place. They don't all, all get in the newspaper. But events that reach the national or the international news, they have to be they have to be newsworthy. So, you know, preferably a bit of violence would be good to get in the newspaper. 
they have to be recognizable in form. That means they have to be not too politically complicated uh, for, for a journalist to write up. And they have to be appealing in some way. They have a, a kind of a human dimension. And I think it's interesting that the media does cover so many of these events because they, they seem to dramatize the, um, the idea, they give a human face to um, global crisis. Um, and I'm always really impressed by how much uh, data you can get from the international media on uh, on, on, on food and fuel rights, especially food rights, I should say. Energy protest is still quite a new thing um, in the literature. I can talk more about that later, but they are still quite a new thing. Um, but uh, it's amazing really how much the international media does cover these events and there are particular reasons for those framings. Um, this is a, a quote from a really great piece by Lauren Snyder and colleagues um, who wrote a great piece on um, media coverage of African food rights in the 2007 uh, wave, 2008 wave. Um, and they take the view that the international me media assumes there's some kind of natural, biological almost correlation between food prices being high and people rushing into the streets as if they are driven only by their bellies. Uh, whereas in the African media, we tend to have much more complicated um, analysis of, of the politics and the, the moral and ethical dimensions. Um, the lack of the lack of other alternative channels for people to take their grievances to um, to their political leaders. And so while the international media does, I think, a pretty good job, actually, of telling us what's going on on these issues, they do tend to flatten these these differences, these complexities um, into more recognizable forms. Policymakers also have a particular take on a particular way of looking at these events. And, you know, what's so interesting is I, I googled food riots dashboard. You know, there's a real kind of dashboard mentality in development policy, as we know. Uh, and I, I was looking for an image for this presentation. And this was this um, global food and nutrition security dashboard was set up two days ago. <laughs> So this dashboard perspective on, on the world is, is, is very much a, you know, I think of it as a kind of a, a sort of a, um, a tech bro approach to development. You know, if, if only I had more data, I could control the world. Um, and in fact, you know, the, the, the World Bank had up until 2015, they had a, another um, global food crisis dashboard, which did actually have literally a food rights radar on it as well. And that's still available on their website, but they're not using it now. They had to set up a new dashboard. But, you know, I look at this and I think if I told you that there were 10,000 protests about food and energy this year, you know, what would you do with this information? How would you know, how would you dashboard this information? Where would it take you? I wonder. Then, of course, there's politicians and politicians the world over when when they're faced with food or energy protests in their countries, they make them look bad. And uh, they don't like it. And so they often say things such as President Bayer said in August when uh, Sierra Leonean protesters took to the streets that these are they're not our people or they are being um, stirred up by political opposition or sometimes by foreign agents. And I think this reflects the fact that politicians see these events as really quite a serious loss of their legitimacy. Uh, political leaders everywhere are getting quite nervous in 2022 about what's going on. I'll give you some quotes there. Um, people know that they there are consequences when, and there are political consequences when they have very high inflation and governments fail to do anything about it. You know, in the in the US in the last couple of days, everyone's been absorbing the um, information about the midterms. 
and whether or not people did vote with their with their wallets, with their pocketbooks, as they say here. Um, but it seemed clear that whatever happened in this election, that on the whole, people are are driven to vote by what happens in their in their um, in the in their everyday economics. Um, the public sees they, they, the public sees these events, these food and f- fuel protests through a lot of different lenses. One is, of course, through the grocery and gas bill, but that's not all. Um, I think it's very clear that that uh, people don't just see this as a one-dimensional thing because what happens in your grocery and gas bill affects the rest of your life. Um, they, these can these these price crises, inflationary crises, can turn into uh, really quite major crises for people that affect their most intimate and personal matters, their families, their kids' futures, their mental health, their marriages, their plans for the future. We see this in, in the work um, that has been done on, on food crises in the past, um, on the quote-unquote coping strategies and resilience, um, both of which are ways of saying uh, people who already have low incomes and live precariously will suffer more. Um, but these are also by the public seen as um, big voter issues. Um, in a really, uh, people expect that um, when prices are really high, that it will affect who they vote for and who, you know, especially for incumbents. And um, I was very struck by some of these memes. I thought the, the this is an Indian meme where a woman is being given a, an onion instead of a diamond ring for an engagement prize and prize uh, gift, and that's why. You know, that's because the price of in- onions in India apparently has been very high. And I think that uh, the, the Shell logo um, says a lot about the way in which people think that corporations are basically giving them the finger, making huge profits, but also not um, bringing prices down. This is a this is a song from um, Mozambique. Um, in 2010 in Maputo, there were protests around um, energy and bread prices. As a guy, as a very popular singer there, he had the song. The ringtone of this song uh, became was seen as a, a kind of a um, you know a, a call to a call to arms, a call to protest, as it were. And he actually ended up in jail. Um, and uh, this is the I think songs is a we, very important way in which. Um, people in countries where you can't easily criticize your government in public spaces. You can you can listen to songs, you can sing songs, you can share ring tunes, ring turns, and uh, that's what happened there. Um, of course, in, in Mozambique after 2010, they brought the tanks in and even though prices went up after that, people found that they were not so inclined to take to the streets anymore. So let's move to the more empirical part. I wanted to talk to you a bit about what's been happening in 2022. Um, we, Jeff Halleck and I have been using ACLED data. Really, the ACLED data is just a game changer for this area of work totally. Um, and we've been working, we've been writing a piece for the Friedrich Ebert Stifting in New York, with Sarah Burke there, um, who's done lots of work with Isabel Ortiz, of course, on, on world protests. Um, this gives you a bit of a sense of what's been happening in the world. Um, you can't really get a very good sense of how very high uh, fuel prices have risen over the last uh, 10 years, the last five years in particular. But you know, the, the trend is upward. Um, food prices are a little bit more stable over the last year or so, but, but energy prices have really diverged from their index prices. <laughs> 
I can talk to you a bit more about the methods that we're using to to look at these events. But essentially, we we ended up dividing the protests into three types. Some were about food, some were about energy, and we're including in this also electricity. And some are more broadly framed as cost of living protests. And this this is what's been happening around the world. Um, in June, for instance, we had over 1,600 of these protests around the world. Some of them small, some of them big, some of them very consequential, as I will show you. Um, so these are the, you know, we don't, again, the ACLA data is marvellous because we get a really quite a good sense of who's been protesting. So I said to you already that politicians tend to view these events as very much driven by opposition uh, groups trying to, trying to unseat them, or coup mongers even. But uh, in fact, these are mostly quite ordinary people, um, workers of various different kinds, often with some support of organized labor. Um, women were very prominent in these, in these events. In over 200 events, women were named as leading the events. This is quite unusual, particularly in, in the countries in which they were leading protests, such as Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, Sudan, Mauritania, Yemen, all properly patriarchal places. Um, it says something about the the, the moral um, power of, uh, of of not being able to feed your family, not being able to look after your ch children that women take to the streets here um, in, in, in these in these um, events. Youth and student groups also very prominent. So lots and lots of uh, different combinations of protests as these are the kinds of people. Um, you can't see very well here, but this is to let you know that really these events took place in all regions of the world. Um, in uh, all levels of development, uh, all types of political system um, had protests. So this is this is you know it is it is a genuinely global wave. Uh, these are the countries that had a hundred or more such events, and this is I should say I say it's twenty twenty two, but actually it's the beginning of November twenty one up until August. We are updating the rest of the data um, till the end of November soon. But this is, I say, 2022 for, for brevity. Um, all of these places, Pakistan had the most. A lot of them were about electricity. I don't think it's any coincidence that they've had the political turmoil that they've had there. Um, and very sadly, the, the floods as well. Um, but they've this was all you know before the floods. Um, so they're having a pretty bad time there. But many other countries are as well. India, not far behind Pakistan there. <laughs> Some of these, some of these moments, some of these um, we would call them episodes, where they just really they took off and they got really big and they spread around the country and they changed the political conversation. They're really quite momentous events. So um, Jeff Halleck put together some case studies, Ecuador and Panama. I'll show you the Ecuador, the details of the Ecuador one, which I thought was extremely striking. Eighteen days, people were on the streets. Um, and nationally, you can see that from the picture, this is all over the country. You know, it's not just a, a handful of provocateurs in the capital city. This went on. And this actually followed a similar um, episode in 2019. Um, uh, I think in between, in fact, there was a huge wave of, of, of energy protests in 2019. It seems to me that people um, uh, stopped protesting because of COVID, but it does seem to have come back again. These were big events, and uh, an IMF loan was was there, was part of the story in Ecuador. Um, people died, uh, people were arrested, lots of uh, the economy was was greatly disrupted. Um, 
And uh, in particular, this was seen as uh, um, very much, these high prices were seen very much as impacting indigenous and rural people. Um, and, and therefore greatly unfair. And, you know, really quite significant political effects. Konai is the, is the confederation of the uh, National Confederation of Indigenous People and Indigenous and, I forget exactly what it stands for, but anyway, it's the, the Association of Indigenous Communities. And, uh, you know, the, 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 these were not, you know, minor, you know, slightly disruptive protests. These were massive rebellions. Similarly, in Sierra Leone, you know, I didn't hear much about this. It's about Sierra Leone in the English language press or in any press. Um, but there were two quite significant protests, one in July and one in August. First was by women, women traders, um, and uh, government cracked down. Um, and there were reports of uh, beatings and rapes by of these uh, Freetown women protesters by the police. As far as I can tell, nothing has happened about that. Um, but then in August, there were these really quite, um, quite, uh, really quite violent um, episodes in across Freetown and parts of the north, um, including the opposition stronghold. But uh, some some twenty seven or twenty eight people were killed, um, and again, we don't know much about what happened there. Um, but the uh, the security forces open fire. It was I've seen some of the video of this, and it's just horrendous uh, that people would be treated like this in their own country. There, there's some really good. Actually, Al Jazeera had excellent uh, video coverage. This woman here, I thought, was so interesting. The the point she's making is that this is is this is not just about the economics. This is also about the politics. If we cannot be heard, we will continue to suffer. And uh, this is very much what has happened in, in, in Sierra Leone as well. Um, I should, I just wanted to share this so that you know exactly what it is that people are facing in Sierra Leone. Sierra Leone is highly dependent on imports for food. If you look at this black line on the graph, it tells you that in the last couple of years, uh, more than half of the population has come to spend more than 75% of their uh, incomes on food, which leaves you just about nothing, as you can imagine, for anything else. So these people are classified as very poor. And yet when they took to the streets in 2020, the government uh, beat them up, killed them, and, and told them to go home again, shut down the internet. Interesting also, um, I was very struck by this, that, that formal civil society in Sierra Leone showed no support that I could see uh, for the protesters, which I think is more of a, an indictment of formal civil society than it is of protesters in Sierra Leone. Just to sum up a bit, the differences between, you know, I haven't kept an eye on the time at all. Okay. Some of the differences between 2022 and 2007, 2008, which was the last global food and fuel crisis, and also the last time we had a massive wave of these kinds of protests. I think the, the really striking thing is that these are no longer events that happen in, in poor countries and developing countries. These, these events are happening everywhere. Italy had loads, Spain had loads. Um, all kinds of countries had, um, had protests. Uh, all kinds of political systems had protests as well. They were very much more about energy than they were about food. Uh, and that's a big contrast with 2007, 2008. Uh, whether it is merely um, 
an effect of the of the of the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the impact on energy markets in the wake of the COVID crisis and the recovery of the global economy from that or whether it's something more substantial and maybe to do with the fact that more and more people rely on modern forms of energy than has ever been true um, before. Uh, I think that energy has become a um, really critical um, issue in, 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 in popular politics. There are probably more of these events than there were in 2007, 2008, which is seen previously, has been seen previously as the big wave. It's a bit hard to tell because the data don't really help us um, compare very directly. But in some ways, these events have been, for many governments, I think, less tractable. Um, they have very little fiscal space um, in many countries after spending, in most places, quite generously on, on COVID protections and COVID uh, policies. But also, um, you know, inflation is very, very high. Um, there is a war going on that's affecting energy, among other things. Um, and many governments seem also disinclined, to be honest, to, to take the kind of action they might want to take. But the ways in which we see continuities with 2007, 2008, and that period of protests is that these, these issues are all still blended together, you know, social reproduction, what happens in the household, whether you're feeding your family, your family life, what's going on climate crisis, what's going on with finance and financialization of food and energy, and then also how that all uh, gets dealt with or not dealt with by politicians. All of this is, is still there in 2022 or is here again in 2022. So I just want to now draw this together with some thoughts on what this all means. What do these many, many protests mean? Um, I think one thing that really is, is emerging that I think is worth noting is the idea of a right to energy. You know, people take to the streets not because they're angry so much as that they feel they have a justification for making claims on their government. So people take to the streets because they need energy, because if they have no lights on in their house, their kids can't do their homework, they can't get to work if fuel prices are too high. The factories might be closed if there's no electricity. Modern life depends on access to reliable and affordable forms of modern energy. And we hear this, this discourse of um, a right to energy, it's, 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 it's really coming in the way people talk about um, why they take to the streets. And it, it strikes me that energy is, energy is to the 21st century what food was to the 18th in a very important way you know it's a, a key area of negotiation between the public and their rulers about what should be provided um, at what price and how reliably and so on and Charles Tilly the great um, historical sociologist um, he he said that how states resolved the food supply challenges is one of the important determinants of state formation I know everyone knows about tax and war, but he also said, he said that food supply was maybe not as important as tax and war in, in, in state formation, in the process of state formation, but it's still pretty damn important. And I would say that, you know, with the way, with the way things are playing out now across the world, um, that how, how, how governments resolve their energy supply problems, um, particularly if it's, if it's a cold winter in the, in the global north, um, will will start to be really critical part of that relationship between state and society. 
I'd say, you know, very specifically around the idea of a right to energy, we're seeing a lot of um, in, in countries where energy is produced, you see a kind of an energy nationalism. It's very specific, you know, national flavor, political, cultural flavor um, to the debate about um, energy rights in Nigeria um, and other countries. But I'm very struck by how uh, people talk about it in, in, in Nigeria. This is work that we did with colleagues as part of the um, Action for Empowerment and Accountability uh, program that was run out of IDS, um, Institute Development Studies, for some years, which we just finished last year. So these ideas of right to energy really are there. This is not this is not something that that people are um, you know shy about asserting. They need energy. We all need energy, um, and uh, that will be true whatever happens in the climate crisis. The other thing that I think is is really uh, interesting and important is how these struggles are what what Nancy Fraser calls boundary struggles. Really, that these are you know these are struggles that do these are protests that do several things. They 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 say you know, Nancy Fraser's book actually names these struggles in such a, a useful way. These are struggles that claim the markets are not sovereign over people and people's needs. They they reject that. They 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 assert that family life and care, social reproduction, the basic, the basic stuff that we do are just impossible under current economic conditions. You can't feed your family, you can't get your kids to school or whatever it is. Uh, and they also assert that politics must tackle economics if people are going to survive, you know. Um, again, thinking about that cold, cold winter possibly descending on Europe in the next few weeks and months. Um, you know, it's not, it, this is not hyperbole. Uh, the other thing I think that these boundary struggles um, assert is that the energy transition that is supposedly on its way, it will have to be a just, a fair transition. This is not only about cutting emissions, but also about ensuring that the people who don't own the yachts and the private jets are not the ones whose energy access is cut or curtailed. I think overall, it's, it's very much about saying that the economy is or should be respectful of the moral and practical limits to profit making. I think also that you know it becomes clearer and clearer to me uh, that when I look at more and more of these protests, um, is that there's these massive failures of accountability on so many different levels. Uh, one is a, a sense of not having a space, not having channels in which to be heard. Um, as this chap said, he was one of the Gilets Jaunes protesters in 2018-2019 in France. He said, I want to be heard, listened to, and have a response. And uh, I don't know if any of you remember, but Macron um, actually did set up a huge national listening exercise to do exactly that. People need to at least be, at least feel that they're being heard. And I think um, intelligent governments, and let's recall that Macron was re-elected, narrowly but nevertheless do listen at least they show that they're listening they at least show that they're trying um if they don't do that it's very clear that it's deeply unpopular in in albania they were protesting earlier this year i think this was in june um and there you know another sense in which um these are failures of accountability um emerges again i can give you examples from all over the world saying almost exactly this that the reason prices are high uh, is that 
there is collusion and corruption between political elites and economic elites. They are making out like bandits while we are unable to eat and feed our children and so on. So it's a failure of accountability in the sense that people are benefiting, corrupt people are benefiting from these high prices. I think it was very striking to watch Joe Biden try to fight with the um, the gas company, the energy companies in this country um, and, and tell them off for you know, earning huge profits at a time of, um, of energy price crisis and so on. Um, I mean, it slightly shows the toothlessness of, of, of current politics that the president of the United States can only wag his finger at the energy companies, can't do any more than that. But it's, it's clear he's also responding to a popular perception that this is, there is corruption of various kinds, there is collusion of various kinds, and people are profiting while the rest of us are suffering. So I think that, um, you know, we hear so much about political polarization, right and left in particular. Um, and yet, you know, looking across these events, I actually see a great deal of political consensus. You know, I wonder a little bit to what extent it's because that's the way the media cover it, that they 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 flatten all of these events into recognizable chunks of, of um, political activity. But I, I don't actually think it is. I think there is broadly speaking, quite a lot of political consensus globally around a number of factors. The first being governments should protect the public from food and energy inflation. I do feel like I've been saying this for about 10 years. Sorry, Raj, you've heard me saying it for 10 years. Also, Duncan, but anyway, here we go again. Um, governments should protect the public. High prices are at least partly due to corruption and collusion between elites. Um, what does that one say? But I haven't got my... Oh, yes, the serious consequences actually do. It's a real moral drama when people have to adjust their lives um, because food prices or gas prices have gone up. These are sufficiently serious to justify rebellion and governments that don't do anything, they lose legitimacy and often elections. <sighs> and what we see is um, in the countries that have had big protests, we are seeing quite a lot of political turmoil a shift to either the far right or to the center left to some extent in 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 in, in central america um i think that uh this is something that we really do have to pay um attention to uh the populism that um these sorts of fears and anxieties are giving rise to are both can be on the right, can be on the left, they can be progressive, they can be um, punitive of those who are seen as others, and so on. And so those really are my reflections on popular po politics and food protests. I have actually got all my references here in case people are interested to see more where this work comes from. Um, and I'm going to leave it there. Thanks, Naomi. That was um, absolutely superb, very stimulating and um, concise. Not something that we can always say about our speakers. So thank you for that. Um, Raj, you've got 20, uh, 10 to 20 minutes, however much you want to freestyle it. And then I think there'll be lots of questions. I've got you know, several. If, if, if other people don't ask, I will. So Raj, over to you. Fantastic, Duncan. And it's it's always very hard to, to follow Naomi uh, because 
you, you, already, you've framed everything so perfectly. I mean, the, the, uh, first of all, let, let me uh, just start by celebrating the, the, your work the first time round that we had food crises, uh, and then observe uh, that even then uh, you, you, were you, you were pointing out that this wasn't just uh, an economic phenomenon, but it was uh, about people taking to the streets demanding dignity. Um, and again, this time round, this, that's precisely the moment that we're in. Uh, we are seeing people who are uh, taking to the streets, uh, not simply because they are unable to afford food and energy, but because not being able to do so is an affront to their dignity. So, you know, and particularly in countries where um, food and energy represents a high percentage of the household income, uh, the household budget rather, it's, you know, you, you see this much more, obviously much more actively. Um, I've, I, I actually just had a, a couple of uh, slides that I, I thought I might present. So I'm not, I'm not sure if I can be spotlighted so I can do that. Um, but uh, the, the first thing I, I want to just maybe uh, just to sort of uh, observe is that there is a tight correlation between uh, food and energy prices. Uh, and that's not an accident that happens through a couple of pathways. One, um, just through uh, you know, the, the fact that the food industry demands so much energy. And, um, you know, you, you can you can see here, let me uh, let me go large. Um, uh, you know, the, 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 we've seen uh, a fairly tight correlation between uh, food and uh, oil prices for a while. Um, now, again, that, that's because of the magic of uh, the uh, of the, the industrial chemistry that's required to make the food system work. But it's also about financialization. Uh, when food uh, increasingly is traded as a commodity through the 1990s uh, and a liberalization that the Clinton administration uh, inaugurates in uh, financial markets here in the United States, uh, the possibility of being able to trade food as a commodity and speculate on it uh, res results in uh, packages of uh, financial instruments that bundle food and energy together, uh, ensuring that they move, that they're more likely to move in lockstep in terms of their prices. Uh, so when you have have uh, a, an increase in the you know in, in the, the the price of food the price of energy uh, is also going to be going up in one way or another um, and you can see uh, that protests uh, increasingly track uh, the, the the price of wheat uh, this is Mark Bellamare's work uh, in uh, the American Journal of Agri Agricultural Economics but you know the, the fact that we do have all these uh, food price spikes uh, correlating with social unrest uh, is, you know, I mean, it, it shouldn't come as a surprise, precisely because of the dynamics that Naomi has just pointed out. So then, I mean, I, I think that there, there are a couple of things I, I wanted to just, you know, uh, add as a sort of grace note to Naomi's presentation, that's precisely about, well, what's different this time round? And is there stuff that we can understand about food uh, protests and food rebellions? And I think rebellions may be the better word just because it adds a certain uh, sort of quantum of political agency to the people in the streets. Riots is what the newspapers call it. Rebellion is what people on the streets tend to understand it as. Um, and it, understanding these rebellions uh, this time round, is, is there anything that we can firstly use non-academic sources to help us interpret what happened in the past and what's different now? Um, What's different now, I mean, I, I think we can uh, fairly clearly see that, that uh, since 2008, uh, there's been a sort of gentle decline in the number of people who are 
uh, undernourished. Uh, and then, of course, COVID happened. Um, and we should talk about COVID. Uh, you know, we should understand uh, the, the food price inflation and COVID uh, you know, predate the war in Ukraine, for sure. Um, but you know, what we're seeing now is increasingly um, the, the sort of reign of uh, increasing food insecurity because of a number of systemic drivers. COVID is certainly part of it. Conflict, um, you know, believe it or not, there were wars before Ukraine, uh, and they've been driving uh, increases in chronic undernourishment. Um, but then you've got just, you know, you've got climate change. Naomi mentioned this earlier on. Uh, and in fact, it's worth thinking a minute about climate change, because we, we often understand climate change as something that happens to agriculture. Um, but you know, if, if we go back to what one of the, the protests that Naomi mentioned um, in uh, in 2010, you, you'll remember that there were these sort of wobbles in the um, uh, in the jet stream. Uh, there was flooding in Pakistan uh, and you know, sort of catastrophic uh, flooding in Pakistan in uh, in 2010. And there was uh, a uh, you know the, the, there was at the same time a massive heat dome over Russia. Um, that heat dome caused fires uh, and you know, raised temperatures uh, to, to the extent that 50,000 people are estimated to have died. There are 50, 55,000 excess deaths, 50,000 are estimated roughly to be uh, as a result of the, of the wildfires, mainly not, not because the wildfires uh, themselves consumed people in the flames, but because wildfires uh, generate particulate matter that then results in anything from uh, heart attacks to uh, respiratory distress to certain kinds, uh, 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 other kinds of uh, acute medical problems. Um, now, the other thing to remember about 2010 was uh, that, you know, particularly in Russia, um, uh, 2010 was uh, the, the, the tail end of 20 years of liberalization. Um, you know, if, if you want to understand how uh, Russian agriculture looks the way it does now, and you want to understand why we have so many oligarchs in Russia, um, look to development studies, particularly the Harvard Institute for International Development that uh, led by um, such luminaries as Jeffrey Sachs, um, you know, uh, Larry Summers was there. Uh, and one of the things they did was um, made it you know, essentially, they threw out certain kinds of Soviet agricultural practices. In particular, uh, they the Soviet Union had been very good about conserving water in the land, um, uh, building on peasant practices. Uh, there was an understanding in Soviet agriculture that uh, you can't just poly, you know, you can't just crop rotate your way to two, three, four, five crops a year in areas where uh, soil moisture needs to be re recharged. Uh, and so that there were limits on the number of crops that you could rotate through uh, in a year. Um, with the advent of the free market, all of that was removed. And now the, the consequence of that uh, was that, uh, and this is this is sort of data that we've been able to get only more recently using uh, satellite analysis and um, uh, and the application of more, more recent climate models. But if you look at where it is that wildfires were worst in this uh, in Russia uh, in 2010 under the heat dome, uh, you'll notice that they were in farming areas where farmers had. Uh, become good capitalists, um, in which the, the restrictions on farming practices allowed farmers to, to rotate, uh, to have four crops a year, for example. Uh, and the surface water and soil moisture had declined precipitously. And the areas where um, soil moisture was the lowest uh, were precisely the areas where farmers had, had been most profitable. Uh, and as a result, uh, areas that uh, you know, had followed intensive cropping um, were in addition to the the, the sort of generative and uh, you know, sort of the, the global phenomenon of climate change, thirteen times more likely to have ex extreme heat 
So what you've got is climate change happening in the world, plus capitalism uh, draining the, the, the soil moisture out of the ground uh, and making climate change worse. And I think that's important because when we when we understand climate change, we ought to understand its relationship with agriculture as having a sort of double headed arrow. Right. It's not just agriculture. Sorry, climate change happens to agriculture, but agriculture can itself precipitate certain kinds of extreme weather because of the way that capitalism works. This isn't something that was clear at the time. It's become clear since. Uh, and I think that you know, if we're interested in understanding you know, food rebellions, uh, then we need to understand uh, you know, within a broader analytical political ecology that explains, you know, not only why it is that uh, we have uh, more extreme weather and why extreme weather is affecting certain crops in certain areas in particular ways, but then also understanding that, look, you know, the, the, uh, after um, Russia experienced this heat dome and the price of wheat uh, looked to be going up. Um, you know, an organization uh, based in Switzerland, Glencore. Um, uh, it, well, it, its Russian representatives, uh, sorry, it, its representatives in uh, Switzerland had a meeting with the Russian ambassador. They said you should uh, definitely uh, impose a grain export ban. Glencore had an interest in this, obviously, because they they had future positions on uh, on wheat, and uh, they couldn't back out of it unless there was a force majeure. And what counts as a force majeure? Not fire in the uh, in 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 Russia, but if Russia were to ex impose a grain export ban. Uh, grain traders can can walk away from their contracts because there is a, a, an exception clause for precisely when uh, countries stop exporting things. Um, two days later, uh, after this meeting that uh, Glencore had in uh, in Zurich, um, the uh, Russians Im, you know, imposed a grain export ban. You saw this huge spike in the price of wheat. Uh, Bellamare tracks that. And then you see food rebellions happen. And they happen in areas that have no business having a food rebellion around wheat. Wheat doesn't grow, for example, in Mozambique. Uh, and yet, because of the history of colonialism, bao is one of the the reasons, uh, one of the 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 the, the, the items that vouchsafes uh, a family's dignity. If there is no bread on the table, wheat bread on the table, uh, families feel that their that they have, their dignity has been insulted. And so you have people queuing for bread uh, and you have people queuing for bread in a time of austerity. Uh, Larry Summers here. I just want to show his picture to remind you that he exists. Uh, but as a result of austerity, you had uh, police in Mozambique opening fire on protesters uh, initially with rubber bullets. But because of austerity, there wasn't enough money to buy rubber bullets. So they switched to live rounds and dozens of people were killed. Now, uh, I think you know, that is a reminder of what it is that we can bring to our past, uh, uh, you know, our understanding of, 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 of food uh, rebellions in the past through modern, you know, through, through the kind of political ecology that we're equipped with now. Um, but it's also important to remember that now we are, as Naomi reminded us, uh, in a moment of authoritarian populism, uh, where climate change is even more extreme, uh, and where interest rates now are substantially higher than they were, obviously, in, in 2008. And that rise in interest rates matters in uh, a context of global economic development because obviously the countries where that, that are experiencing uh, high you know experiencing food uh, and food fuel rebellions are precisely those countries that are uh, in deep debt distress you know think of sri lanka uh, and if you look at the media reports around sri lanka you'll notice 
uh, that you know the story about Sri Lanka is oh yes no well they, they were idiots they uh, cancelled their use of fertilizer they tried to go fully organic in 20 minutes and look what happened it's, it's you know it is and I'm using the social science term here it's a clusterfuck um, so what happened well, you know if, if that's the media representation of Sri Lanka um, I, you know it's it's worth scratching the surface there I mean obviously Sri Lanka uh, backed away from importing fertilizers because they were broke. Uh, because of uh, you know mismanagement uh, uh, and, and a, a very deep embrace of uh, neoliberal uh, economic policy, um, and cutting off fertilizer imports was just the only way that uh, the the, you know, the 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 prevailing administration uh, was able to uh, you know try and square some of the the sort of bu the, the, the budget, um, but. You know, the, the fact is uh, that uh, Sri Lanka was also hugely dependent on uh, the export of tea to uh, Russia and uh, Ukraine and was desperate, uh, you know, and needed Russian Ukrainian uh, tourism dollars. And when all of that fell away, um, it was it was very clear that the government was not be going to be able to repay its loans. And with interest rates rising, Sri Lanka's uh, food rebellion and change of administration is, is certainly not the only one, as uh, Naomi says. We've got a lot to look forward to uh, in terms of social turmoil, alas, uh, with the, the encroaching winter uh, as fuel and food prices continue to rise. And when interest rates make it uh, put governments on uh, you know, in, in the most invidious position of having to choose either between repaying uh, their international debt obligations or feeding their people. Um, this is work. You know, th 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 these remarks are just in celebration of Naomi's uh, you know, uh, observations around how food and fuel rebellions are going to be with us for the long term. And I, I'm very excited uh, to be part of this discussion. So maybe I'll, I'll turn it back to y'all um, so that, Duncan, we can start uh, chipping away at these questions. Thanks, Raj. You clearly spent too much time in Texas. Um, OK, uh, we. this is the moment when people need to think about what they really want to ask and put it in the uh, chat. And then what we'll do is when we uh, will call on people to come on to the Zoom call and ask a question themselves rather than reading it out. If you don't want to do that, let us know and I'll read them out, but I don't particularly want to do that. Um, we have two to begin with, um, and I'm going to add a third just to, just because I can, okay, because I'm cherry. Um, so um, the first is Camila Teixeira from UNICEF. Camila, do you want to come on Zoom and uh, ask your, come on mic rather and ask your question? Sure, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Duncan, for organizing the, these events. I've been attending almost all of them. Um, my question is for Professor Hussain. Uh, really, thank you so much for the presentation. Really interesting. As I mentioned in the chat, we're following these topics very closely also because it impacts children and increasingly more young people are participating in these protests. And I was just curious about um, the data set that you have referred to, Akled, uh, we also we also use it. But one of the concerns we have is the fact that if you look at the data from uh, during the Arab Spring, we don't see spikes in in the reports of of protests during those years. So I was wondering if you have any reflections on that, and also wondering if we could use some of the charts you presented, if it's published somewhere, and if we could reference that as well. Thank you. Thank you very much. That's a good researcher's question. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, okay, can I answer them as we go along? Because otherwise I'll forget the things that I... You want to say one at a time? Yeah, it's all right. Just because I, I wanted to answer Camilla before I forget. And, and Camilla, I'm really glad to hear UNICEF is um, uh, keeping an eye on these issues, lis listening to these issues. You know, when it, unlike in 2007-8, the, the most of the uh, high proportion of the food-related protests that we saw this last year were students complaining about the quality or the quantity of the food in canteens, in schools, 
in universities. It's it's a really big thing. You know, this is where for, for many people they're getting one meal. It used to be a good meal a day. And now because of the price of things, they're either being served absolute rubbish or there's not enough of it. There's not enough to go around. And so this was a, a this is, you know, children's rights in a big way. Uh, and I was very struck by that, actually. So this is something I think we should look at. Regarding the ACLED data, um, I don't know exactly when I looked into this, but I don't know exactly when, but the the, the methodology um, changed and improved substantially in the last few years. Um, I, I would recommend you get in touch with them and talk to them. They're really excellent, very supportive of anyone using their data. Um, they'll answer the questions. And uh, I would say also that the fact you don't see a spike in the numbers of events doesn't tell you very much about the seriousness of those events. You know, if, if a million people are taking to the streets in one large event, that might not show up as more events as, you know, small 20, 30, 50 protesters. So you have to re learn to read these things, you know, in a way that makes sense. But I would definitely contact them to ask about that and this is why i say really what we're seeing in the last three or four years is not strictly speaking comparable to what we saw 10 15 years ago unfortunately right thanks Naomi. raj i'm gonna chuck things to Naomi. if you want to come in on any of them just just jump in all right uh, after Naomi's spoken uh arthur zimmerman would you like to come on camera and ask your question yeah oh. Just a minute. Uh, okay. Uh, I would like uh, to thank uh, Professor Naomi Hossein. And uh, my interest is about the rural population, uh, especially in the South Hemisphere, uh, especially Latin America, and not the urban uh, population uh, itself. Uh, what do you think about the the rural population that suffer a lot, uh, especially with the more poor people than the urban centers in general, according to some part of the literature, and uh, what this uh, increasing price in food price would uh, uh, have impacts on the on the population of uh, rural sectors, please. Such an excellent question, and I know Raj will have many thoughts on this as well. Um, of course, rising food prices are not always bad for rural populations, right? Um, I know, I know. Um, you know, in the in the advocacy world, in the in the news media world, we tend to get, oh, food prices are really high. But if you're growing food and you're getting more in the market, it's not, you know. So, so that's partly the story I think that we have often missed during these global food crises is that people who are producing food may themselves be benefiting at least in some at some level in some way. But I don't think that's true for um, the vast majority of the rural populations who are net food buyers in the world, uh, mostly low income people. Um, and the, you know, the industrialization of agriculture, of course, has meant fewer and fewer people are able to grow their own food you know, in any serious way. I would say also one thing or two, which I think is really important to keep in mind, and you know, even I, after doing all this work for many years, I still slip into this. Just because people, do, if people don't protest does not mean they're not suffering, right? You know, protests only happen in, you know, a really kind of a, a, a mixture of magical things has to come together really for people to be able to take the streets. And maybe not in Brazil, I believe you, you're a country where people like to, um, you know, 
protests, but uh, you know, there are many countries, you know, Raj mentioned uh, Mozambique, where it's dangerous. You take your life into your hands if you take to the streets and criticize the government. So people rarely, I think, take to the streets because it's easy, but because really they feel quite forced to, and the political situation has made it possible. Rural areas on the whole are less, they find it less easy to, people find it less easy to organize a big protest around. But there have been some this this last year. Uh, it's not all been uh, cities and small towns. There have been some. But I, I would say don't read that, the absence of protest, as the sign that everything is going well. And I think a lot of policymakers actually do make that mistake. Raj. Um, I mean, I, 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 my, my job here is just to say, like she said, but with more <laughs> stuff around um, but she's, I mean, so, so, so for example, th think, uh, you know, if, if you're a protester, what good does it do you to be in the middle of the field going down with prices? Um, it just doesn't, you know, it, it, it doesn't track, which is why the biggest protest in human history was farmers going to Delhi. Um, and that's, uh, you know, it, it's just far farmers understand that they, you, you, if you're going to protest, you have to go to where the centers of power are. Um, but again, this is just, just to say, uh, as Naomi, Naomi just did, you know, the, the fact that they had to go there was precisely because they could, they had studied uh, what uh, the Modi administration had been trying to sneak into uh, the the law um, in, uh, you know, under COVID. And, you know, he managed to sneak in a bunch of things like, uh, you know, sort of, uh, he, he sold some coal concessions and, you know, gave uh, various gifts to his friends uh his billionaire friends in india but um the you know the, the one gift that couldn't be given that couldn't be taken from farmers was uh, precisely the the you know the, the the three laws that um you know we, we can talk about uh, perhaps in another seminar but um you know, th th those protests are, are quite important but i do want to point out something else that's different this time around um it's true that uh you know higher food prices may accrue to people who own the means of production uh in uh in the the food system uh and you you are seeing record profits uh throughout the food system um you know i mean it, even war can be good for uh for, for food profiteers you know if you notice the, the the day that the war in ukraine uh uh started and then every time it was reported that it had gotten worse um share prices for you know archer daniels midland uh and Bungie, I think, is the one that's still that's public. And then, you know, Cargill and, uh, you know, the, the Dreyfus, uh, which I think are partially private, you know, they, they, they did quite well. Um, but with a high interest rate, uh, and particularly with a strong dollar, I mean, the high interest rate is, is a phenomenon that emerges from the US geopolitical decision to have a strong dollar. What does that do to the agricultural economy? It means that uh, in the global south, uh, returns accrue to people who are exporting. And so the the export food the export commodity economy uh, is doing quite well, and in general, that's not peasants. Uh, that tends to be uh, you know, or it tends to be certainly not the poorest people. And the returns are not going to labour; they're going to precisely the people who own the means of production, and particularly who own uh, the logistics channels. And one of the things that I think is different this time around is that we've seen, as with every crisis, every crisis precipitates a consolidation uh, within a range of industries, and we're seeing very, very consolidated, even more consolidated than 2008, uh, food systems and logistical networks. Uh, and so while you know we began this
this question asking, well, you know, what about people in rural areas? Um, but where I want to take it is to say, well, yes, you know, that there's a complex dance of, well, are you a net food buyer or, or a net food seller? Um, but in the bigger picture, uh, what's pretty disturbing here, and I think what people are responding to in this, this these protests around dignity and essentially inequality is uh, a, a, a much clearer recognition that this time round, some people are making off like bandits in some ways that are just unconscionable when we, we are seeing increased levels of food insecurity and suffering. And I think that's driving uh, people's understanding of what's messed up right now. Thanks, Raj. Now we have a group of students uh, in the old theatre in Houghton Street, for those who know the LSE. And Laura Mann is, is ready with a microphone because there's a question there. Laura, do you want to do the thing? Hey, I hope this works. It does, it does. We're hybrid. Woo! Hi, um, thanks for your uh, presentation. I was wondering how you viewed the potential of alternative forms of agriculture, in particular hydroponics, to increase uh, food self-sufficiency and thereby reduce the reliance on international supply chains and um, potentially also uh, food rights. Thank you. I will, I will hand that straight to Raj, don't you think? Smart work, Naomi. <laughs> I don't I, I don't really agriculture per se is not my thing. I should say one of the things we left out of this analysis for 2022 was uh, protests that were specifically about um, fertilizer um, and indeed water. And there were lots of them, farmers protesting about the price of fertilizer and water. Um, and we uh, we just couldn't include them all. You know, there was just too much going on. We needed to focus. So we focused on that. I don't have an answer about the hydroponics and uh, agroecology, but I know, Raj, you have. Oh, I, I, I've got opinions. Um, but I mean, I, I think, you know, my opinions are just sort of based in precisely in, in sort of an understanding that agroecological production seems to be uh, what we need more of when we're thinking about a, a moment of climate crisis, uh, of uh, you know living through the sixth extinction of needing to move rather rapidly away from the use of you know chemical fertilizers and then you know fossil fuel fertilizers um hydroponics is different from that uh because hydroponics is essentially setting up uh, systems of fairly energy intensive and chemical intensive indoor agriculture uh that uh, as, as yet I've not seen it done at a scale that is in any way robust. Um, this isn't to say that, that we don't need science and we don't, and particularly in, um, you know, in areas that are, uh, you know, I mean, thinking particularly about the Middle East, that, that we don't need investment in certain kinds of uh, ways of farming and, uh, you know, forms of, uh, uh, you know, modern agriculture that can sustain populations. I, I think that there's, um, you know, it, it would be, it's hard to do agroecology uh, in Riyadh. It's hard to do agroecology in Dubai and Qatar. Um, but it's possible uh, with the right sorts of investments in science uh, that we can come up with uh, forms of agriculture that do sequester carbon, that aren't energy intensive, uh, that are uh, conducive to a flourishing uh, ecosystem as opposed to monoculture. And that's what worries me about uh, hydroponics in particular, is that the way that it works at the moment it's essentially sort of a chemistry experiment, uh, writ very large and therefore uh, very energy intensive and not therefore conducive to, uh, you know, if you're interested in uh, not importing fossil fuels, um, hydroponics doesn't necessarily seem like the way to go. Now, of course, you say, well, we need solar panels and we can do this and we can do that. And that's great. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm interested in 
these kinds of research questions. I, I think that, that there, there may be a, a path here. But in the me, you know, in, in the short to medium term, we know that agroecology works well and it increases household income and it reduces domestic violence. It does a range of things. Um, but uh, that that sort of investment seems to be not on the radar of uh, you know the the food industry. There was a very good letter circulating around Bill Gates's complicity in some fairly stupid uh, investments in the opposite of agroecology over the past 10 years. Um, so, I, I mean, I think that while these, uh, these research questions are interesting, uh, we also have some good answers to the questions that these research in initiatives propose to answer. And we, they already exist and they're doing quite well and they're underfunded because it involves poor people and poor people's knowledge. Uh, and I would much rather we divert some proportion of our share of agricultural research spending to that uh, than to imagine that we're going to tech bro our way out of it. Thank you, Raj. Um, Juliette Martinez, uh, can you come on uh, camera and ask, ask your question? And then I'm going to ask a question. I don't care. All right, but Juliette, you go. Yeah, thank you. Uh, well, thank you for coming. My question is about the relationship between populism and climate change. So I feel like in many countries like France, Mexico, the US, Brazil, a lot of the populist discourses are sort of against environmental measures. So either because politicians just negate the importance of climate change or because of, of accusations of neocolonialism, etc. Um, and especially when it comes down to the exploitation of uh, natural resources such as lodging or fossil fuels. But do you think that as climate change increases the scarcity of precious resources like water, food, fuel, we will see like a reverse trend in which authoritarian populism means restricting uh, or rationing the use of these resources, at least for some specific social groups? Don't tell that, Amy. Yeah. Is that difficult enough for anyone? I mean, that's really... A lot of questions in one, really, and I think you you you've ray you've put your finger on something deeply difficult and actually also deeply uncomfortable, um, which is that I think those of us sitting in the West with an understanding that climate change is real are very keen for fossil fuels to be limited, the use of fossil fuels to be limited as soon as possible, and then we meet our colleagues and friends who live in you know, in the global south, in countries where they are discovering new energy sources and deposits and quite reasonably want to exploit them in the way that the West has already done for 200 years. I mean, that's very difficult, you know, and uh, when 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 those of us who have been, who are talking or working in, in the global south, listening to Extinction Rebellion, the others, um, what's the end, what's the what's the tomato soup people called? Just top oil. Yeah, those people. It's like, oh, that's great, that's great. So you guys got rich for 200 years on exploiting everything there is. And now other people can't do that because you've screwed up the environment so much already. I think that, so in, I think in the global south, the populists should, and the others should also be pushing back against this. Um, if anyone gets to burn fossil fuels, it should not be in the global north. All of this is is, is crazy talk in a way, isn't it? Let's face it. Uh, but I think in the north, you're absolutely right that this this becomes a stick to beat the you know in in the US the liberal elites the electric car driving, cycling you know green elites. Um, and people who live in rural West Virginia or somewhere historically 
relied on mining and so on uh, are the sufferers. So I think you're right that there will be this there will be this this shift to 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 saying this is you know, we, we we should continue to you know use our resources. I think what's what I, the point I keep trying to make to people about polarization versus consensus emerging from these really quite global protests is that this the same the same political impulse the same imperative which is I must be protected from these global shocks that I cannot myself do anything to protect against. Government must protect me. That this impulse really can go either way. It can go, it can be captured by the left, such as the left is in many countries around the world. Fortunately, we saw in Brazil recently the return of Lula as opposed to crazy climate crisis denying others. Um, but it can go, it can go other as well. We've seen what's happened in Sweden, in Italy, in other places. Italy, um, I don't know if you could see on my graph, had a great many of these protests about basic cost of living things. When people are fearful, it's quite easy to blame immigrants, outsiders, and so on. So I think it's it's very easy for this, this political energy to go to the far right or to go to the left. But we don't see currently in the world very many progressive, center-left political forces able to capture that. And this is why I think it's a very important thing to think about who is attending these protests, who's organizing these protests. It's labor organizations, ultimately. It's organized labor, really, that's very much behind this. And in so many countries around the world, including in the UK, organized labor has has had a really, has, has faced a lot of um, new regulations, uh, lost a lot of its old um, powers and old legitimacy. We're seeing again now some sort of resurgence of, of unionization. It's in the US, it's very, very noticeable. Um, but nevertheless, organized labor is a weak force compared to what it was 40, 30 years ago globally. So this is my fear is that it can go left or right. And I think from what I'm seeing, it's very likely to go right. Can I just uh, quickly, I mean, again, like like Naomi said, uh, I mean, in the United States, you do have one sort of movement that maybe articulates the, the things overseas, which is the, the movement for a Green New Deal. Uh, and look at the union that is most vocally in favor of the Green New Deal. It's the Air Stewards Union. Right, uh, which is not what you would expect at all, uh, and yet, of course, it's an occupational safety issue for them. Um, in the same way that actually, you know, it, the, the, some of the unions in the forefront of regulating the oil industry were uh, the the oil workers themselves who didn't want to be uh, exposed to uh, toxic waste. Um, here, the air stewards are, are very interested in the idea of not, uh, you know, being having their necks broken when uh, pockets of turbulence, uh, you know, when planes fly through pockets of turbulence. So, point being, um, th there is possibly uh, something to, to build on for the left, um, particularly around a, a global Green New Deal. Um, but I live in Texas, uh, and in Texas, uh, we, we have um, a, a particular kind of authoritarian populism here. And you know, the only thing that's worse than uh, Donald Trump not taking climate change seriously is when Donald Trump does take climate change seriously. And we had a, a shooting, a mass shooting here, one of the many ones, obviously, but uh, we had one in um, El Paso, where an eco-fascist uh, went to Walmart, um, and he it was so El Paso is on the border uh, with Mexico, and uh, this particular individual 
uh, had a manifesto that was very explicit about the need uh, to, to uh, it was a Malthusian understanding of climate change. Climate change is going to re reduce the pie for everybody. Uh, we in America need to hang on to our fair share. These brown bodies from Mexico are coming over and getting our stuff. That is why they must die. Uh, now that that ecofascism is actually uh, thriving uh, in in the United States and elsewhere. I mean, Brazil is is a very interesting example of how you know if if you look at uh, the the gold miners, the artisanal gold miners um, who are going into Yanomami territory, for example, in the Amazon, they're using precisely the same kind of language of you know well the, the, these savages need to get out of the way because this is our natural patrimony and we must you know we, we must exploit it for the greater good of Brazil uh, and you know the, 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 these buggers have nothing to do with it and they they're, they're just squatting our natural rights and our natural resources. That ecofascism is on the rise uh, and I'm I'm incredibly worried about it and I, th I think we all are here. Thanks, Raj. Um, Naomi, I wanted to um, ask you to dig in a bit more into the politics of all this. So first of all, I was struck by Ecuador, right? Ecuador has a long tradition of street protest. Um, so in a way, it's not surprising that everybody takes to the streets. But uh, are there other cases where there's been a sort of bigger barrier to entry for protest? And do you get tipping points where once people start protesting about food, they start protesting about other things? So I'm, I'm basically asking you to do a bit of hand waving rather than sort of you know, numbers based analysis. Similarly, um, is the politics of energy protest, how is it different from the politics of food protest? Is the class makeup of the protesters different? Um, is, are, are the impacts in terms of policy change uh, different? And finally, I mean, Mikey Duncan. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can't even write them all down. <laughs> you, this is interesting. I'm sorry. <laughs> it is interesting. Are we seeing any big political shifts actually emerging from this? So are we seeing governments falling? Yeah. What are we seeing any sort of Tunisia, Arab Spring type events, or do you think they, or is it just isolated uh, uh, eruptions which then disappear and 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 don't leave a, a trace? So just a little bit about uh, just digging a bit further into the politics of all this. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's it's so hard to know where to start. In fact, I just before before we go on to that, I wanted to pick up what Raj said about the Malthusian politics, if you like. And uh, two things that really uh, struck me is the the discourse around Im immigrants and um, you know, immigrants coming particularly to the UK in lifeboats. And I think people have forgotten about that hideous um Strand of thought, lifeboat ethics, Garrett Hardin, literally, this is literally about people coming in lifeboats and essentially white supremacists saying, no, no, we only have enough for us. And uh, you know, this 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 theorizing, if you like, triage theory is another one, um is 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 really resonant right now. And it's interesting that the last time they were so resonant was in the early 70s during the, the last major global food crisis. So this these kinds of perceptions of scarcity and dearth, they do tend to, I think, really stimulate the, the Malthusians and the, and the hardcore racists in ways that we should be listening to. You know, I think we should be paying attention to that. Now, the politics of these of these protests, well, let me start with the energy bit. Um, yes, the politics of energy are, I think, very different, actually, to the politics of food protests. Um, and there's there's several reasons for that. Uh, but but the main one I'd say is that, you know, whereas governments and countries and citizens have histories, long, long histories of of these sorts of struggles around food. You know, when you talk to somebody who is protesting about food now, they can always tell you about 
the last time this happened well back in 74 or 89 or whenever it was we did this and then this happened and then i think about the um uh the the the, the kind of the big global um policy spaces you know that there is space for food for civil society actors for citizens voices excuse me sorry the dog nice dog um, <laughs> uh the, the truffle i've lost my thread now <laughs> what was i saying <laughs> i know it's always very distracting oh yeah so so any energy in in the same way that you know we we have um uh, you know the 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 committee on world food security and so on cfs committee cfs isn't it this 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 has a lot of civil society actors international ngos social movements all kinds of actors are involved transnational alliances of various kinds we have nothing like that for energy there's nothing like that for energy uh, when you talk to government officials uh, energy investors particularly multilateral development bank people or imf people about energy the idea that citizens should have some kind of say in energy policy is just like why what what kind of an idiot are you these are highly technical issues we can't have ordinary people having a say and so i think that in a way that food the, the kind of food struggles food contention these food rebellions that raj talks about are are very much more you know that in many ways they're almost ritualized you know we know what should happen next we know who should speak we know there are spaces we can talk you know there are there are there are tropes that we can deploy energy is kind of new like that you know when when did it become a a right to to fill your your gas tank when did it become a right it's not in the bible is it so i think these are new and i think we have to you know treat them um in some ways as new and recognize that whereas there is space for people to talk about energy to sorry about food to claim their rights to energy there is no such thing um around energy that i can, that i can see Neil McCulloch's done some very good work on this. Pete Newell is also doing some very good work on uh, citizens and, you know, spaces for decision-making around energy. Right. Do you need to go and get truffle or is everything okay? No, no, he's gone to bark at the mailman. Um, all right. Um, we have another question in the old theatre, I believe. Laura, is that still the case? Let's see if it works again. Yeah. Can you hear me? Yep. Thank you. Thank you very much, Naomi, Rack, for those great presentations. So I am Ana Pasquel from Ecuador, and I was actually there in 2019 and 2022 to see the, the rebellions. And I, I, I do agree in that accountability is like a really good, like a really great factor for these rebellions. And my question goes to Naomi to the conclusion points in which you mentioned that government should protect people uh, from food and oil, and oil inflation. So how uh, an effective protection will look like? Thank you. Did you hear that, Naomi? I did, and now I rather regret saying all this stuff because I don't know the answer to that, Anna. Um, I would love to hear more about your experiences in Ecuador, um, though. So please, if you have, if we have time. But uh, I'd say the first thing I would say is that um, if energy is um, is a right, if people need energy for their everyday life, all of them, everyone for all sorts of everyday life, um, 
it can't be a, a pure commodity. It can't be left to the whims and of the global markets and the um, the energy companies to 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 price. Uh, there must be a strong element of public ownership, and there must be a strong element of subsidy for those who cannot pay. And I I just don't see how we can get around that. Come back, Anna. Oh, yeah, the thing is that just in Ecuador, is that like what is happening? You hold the mic closer, please, Anna. Okay, now can you hear me better now? Yeah, that's better. Thanks. Oh, thank you. So yeah, that's actually what what is happening. That there used to be a subsidy on on oil, and the current government is actually lifting this uh, this subsidy. And apart from this um, war situation, that in general the oil prices went up. So that really affected the economy of, of people, like life is getting unaffordable. So I think right now that, that's the question, like should the subsidy be lifted? Should, should the subsidy come back? Or, or how is like a really good way to implement it? Like, I think that's all the Ecuadorians concern right now so that these things, these kind of rebellions won't happen again. We have another question to Duncan in the room. Okay, so bring it on. I think this might have to be the last one because um, I want to give Raj and Naomi a chance to wrap up as well. And we need to finish at uh, 5.30 our time. But next question, please. Hi, uh, can you hear me? Yep, all good. Um, my question is, I think, uh, so either Naomi or Raj can maybe ask. So I, I found it so interesting that yeah, the situation between the price of like a corn and also oil, this is kind of a situation between this. Um, so I found it so interesting, but I also suppose suppose there's like something behind the story behind this kind of price movement, which maybe the oligarchs or maybe commodity trader who deal with the kind of global supply chains uh, things. And then my question is, given that there was like those uh, kind of like actors who actually dealing with those uh, global business in the commodity, and if, if consider the kind of global uh, phenomena, global like supply chain things, do you think like the um, so-called this food riot or the food rebellion, those social movement, is quite similar in between between those energy uh, movement and also the food movement? Because I think I think there might be some like the same like organization or group for fighting against those like the capitalism or whatever. So my question is. I mean, if you looking at like recent history from 2008 to 2020, is there any difference in actor who work on the energy uh, or food? So, what do you think? Do you see some like similarity between them? Thanks for that. Um, so, I think Raj, let's go to you briefly, and then Naomi briefly, and then let's declare victory and go home. Um, so, Raj. Um, I, I, really, the only thing I, I can say is thank you for these questions. They're too good to answer right now um, because I mean, the, the, you know, the, the, I, I think you, these these are these are terrific and really really important. Um, just as a, a, a broad thing, I mean, I, I do think that when it comes to food systems, there's definitely uh, a you know broad and growing social movement thinking about uh, what would it be like to have a public distribution system for food. Uh, not just in India, but elsewhere. Uh, and, and there have been moments, for example, in the history of Chile uh, uh, under Allende, where there were things like popular supermarkets, like state-run supermarkets. Um, 
but they were frustrated essentially by uh, the petty bourgeois sort of uh, shopkeepers and by truckers, by the logistics networks. And I think it's really interesting to think about how logistic ne logistics networks now are essentially where the power is, not just in food, but also in fuel. Um, and so any social movement will need to contend with truckers uh, in, in the most reactionary form, as opposed to, uh, you know, the, the sort of longshore folk who have generally been part of a very progressive understanding of how logistics networks can be forces for good. Um, but these are great questions. It's been just a real honor to be uh, in the same virtual room as y'all. And thank you so much. Thanks. Um, Naomi, um, Truffle seems to want to intervene as well. Um, but but I, Time for his walk, unfortunately, yeah. Which of you yeah, wants to speak first? No, this was a brilliant, also this last question, it's so interesting. I should say one thing that is important, you know, because you're all scholars and you're doing your masters and your, you know, PhDs and so on, um, energy protests have not had the kind of attention that they deserve to date. And, um, you know, the, the, there haven't been that many until quite recently. Um, and the ones that have happened have been mostly, you know, your logistics people, Raj, the truckers and so on. And there is a tendency in political sociology, people that I hang out with a lot, to only want to study things that we like. And so political sociologists being progressive sorts of people, they really believe in food sovereignty and all the rest of it. But when it comes to people fighting for subsidies on fossil fuels, eh, you know, and so you have this weird bifurcation of all of the protests you know, we talked about these 10,000 protests, probably another 10,000 were against fossil fuels, which we do not include in our data set. Because there's at the same time, sometimes in the same country, in the same city, sometimes even on the same day, you've had people saying we need to be able to get to school and keep the lights on. And people saying no more fossil fuels, no more fossil fuels, especially on Fridays, of course, Fridays for Futures. So this is, you know, it's it's really important. And so we don't really, we're still only beginning to understand about these energy protests. So I strongly recommend people to start researching it, please. Happy to talk to you more about it, so. That was fantastic. I mean, I particularly like this idea that um, there isn't an institutionalization yet of energy protests. And so, you know, while everything's kind of fixed and entrenched on food, it's still emerging on energy and it's only gonna get bigger. And therefore, you know, both studying it and trying to become involved in it, is, you're much more likely in a way to have results than if you just climb into an established set of arguments, polarised arguments around food. So I thought that that, that definitely got me thinking, um, as did lots of other things that both you and Raj said. So huge thanks for coming online. Thank you for those of you who've, uh, who've joined us. Um, this will all be going up on YouTube and blogs and all the rest of it. Next week, uh, just to remind people, we have another star, Jayati Ghosh, and she will be talking about why inequality is the basic driver of the climate crisis and what we can do about it. Very um, timely with the COP27 going on in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt. So I hope you can come back uh, next week and um, a round of sort of virtual applause, however you want to do it. For our speakers that's right do your little hand things um and thank you very much everybody and we'll see you next week thank you thank you so much bye-bye thanks for tuning in to this lecture recording from the autumn 2022 cutting edge issues in development thinking and practice lecture series to hear more don't forget to subscribe to our channel on spotify apple google or wherever you get your podcasts you can also watch any of these lectures back on our youtube channel search youtube for International Development LSE. Find out about upcoming events, including the next Cutting Edge Lectures, 
by searching for events on the LSE Department of International Development website and find us on Twitter at LSE underscore ID for the latest updates.